Hey guys, in editing the podcast, I realized I forgot to select the correct microphone. Uh, When you haven't recorded for a couple of months, apparently, you forget how to do it a little bit. The sound is a little bit tinny in the episode. Just want to give you a little heads up. Enjoy the sea cucumbers. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been longer than planned as a break. I'm your host, Olivia, and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. Welcome to the first episode in the new year. Uh, I hope your new year has so far been uneventful and has included zero people having to open up your ceiling to find and fix a leak and then they have to come back once a week for the next couple of weeks to close up and then poorly repaint it. Um, And that's definitely not a personal example. And we are also hoping that the heat stays working and all of the neighbors stay out of jail. Um, (laughs) Hopefully you're time in the last month and last couple of months has been a much more normal time than the last couple of months for me. Um, I am with the new year. I'm planning on actually getting back into my routines and actually releasing episodes more routinely again, but with work being pretty busy and hopefully moving in a month or two, I might still be a little bit spotty with regularly releasing episodes, but rest assured, if I spontaneously disappear for an unpredictable amount of time or an unpredicted amount of time, I am still planning on coming back. Uh, So now for this episode, in getting back into things, um, I know I do owe everybody a episode about octopodes sleeping, and I'll probably also talk about cuttlefish sleeping because, spoiler, I went to the Niagara Aquarium over Christmas break, and they have some dwarf cuttlefish now, which are pretty snazzy. They're cute little guys. And one of them was sleeping while we were there, and we actually got to see it go into REM sleep, and that was really, really cool um, because it just started changing colors, um, top half different from the bottom half. um, Because as you might remember from our episode about cuttlefish, um, camouflage and color changing, Um, They can control the front half of their body uh, separately from the back half of their body. So it was so cool seeing that in action. Um, I haven't, you know, had, like most people, I haven't had many chances to see cuttlefish change color. And then it just so happened to spend 30, the 30 seconds in REM sleep while we were staring at it. So that was really cool. Um, But anyways, um, I wanted to ease in to routines and episodes with the new year with a less uh, research intensive one. So for today we have, this is actually probably one of my favorite symbiotic relationships in the ocean, and I'm a little bit surprised with myself that I haven't covered it yet. Um, Is it a parasite? Is it a commensal thing where just one of the critters benefits? In this case, the answer is yes. So first, our host. We're talking about sea cucumbers. And at this point, if you know, you know, and you might know where this is going. Um, So sea cucumbers are animals, so they're not anywhere near related to cucumbers, but they are named after cucumbers because of their general 
shape. You kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, it's cucumber shaped. So uh, sea cucumbers are kind of just a cucumber with the mouth at one end and a cloaca at the other end. Um, you might be wondering what such a blobishly shaped critter could be related to. Um, there are some pretty weird bugs. There's some pretty weird crabs out there. Is it a crustacean? Maybe a mollusk with the very general slug-like appearance? But no, this is an echinoderm. I don't know if we've talked about echinoderms much yet. We might have to change that. Echinoderms are a funky group of animals. Um, they also include sea stars, sand dollars, and sea urchins. There are a few characteristics that tie um, each of these groups together. Some of them are pretty easy to spot. Um, the most obvious one is actually the five-point symmetry. So if you think about uh, sea stars, where the pretty typical body plan is to have five arms, they oftentimes, um, if they have more than five, it's usually in multiples of five. Same with brittle stars. Sand dollars have kind of five segments going on. And if you were to ever have the chance to look at a sea cucumber, which I hope you do, they have five muscle bands that you can see going lengthwise. So like uh, mouth to oeka, which that's, I not, didn't think I was going to say that twice today, but that's okay. Um, like kind of if you took a starfish and bumbled up all of the legs and then elongated it, kind of. Um, the other characteristic is their little tube feet that they use to move. Tube feet are pretty easy to spot on starfish, on sea stars. You kind of just flip them over and they've got like their little suction feet. Um, but everybody in their group has them um, to help them move. If you've ever taken a really close look at sea urchins, um, it's not the spines that are the tube feet, but they have, um, they're almost um, tentacle-like projections that come out from the body to help them crawl around, albeit not very quickly, on the ocean floor. Sea cucumbers have the very same thing, and they just extend out from the body and help them walk around like feet. So it's just like if you took tubes, stuck feet on the bottom, there you go. Um, tube feet do have kind of determined locations, like they don't just sprout out from anywhere. So like your legs have a spot where they attach onto your torso. You just can't like sprout a leg out from your side if you're lying on the floor and you want to move yourself around. Um, because I know there are some critters like amoebas and some protists that when they um, create their like pseudopods, their kind of pretend feet, they can just kind of jet them out from wherever. Um, but tube feet do kind of have like a spot where they exist. And um, what tube feet are a part of, they have, um, they do have a um, kind of hard inner shell. And when you look at uh, sand dollars, it's that hard shell that you see. Um, with sea cucumbers, that's under a skin layer. Um, but what helps to helps the echinoderms keep their shape is kind of this whole um, hydraulic system. So their tube feet are kind of like water pumps. In a way, that's not the best analogy, but um, when they want to project a tube, a tube foot, um, they kind of have to shoot a bit of water that way. And um, in a bit of a side tangent, there are a group of sand dollars, no, not sand dollars, a group of sea urchins that don't really have the, uh, like, they don't really have the hard shell. So um, when you see them underwater, they would still be round because of the water that they have flowing inside their body helps them to keep their shape. 
but if you were to remove them from the water, then they the water they kind of spit out all the water in a way, like the water drains out. So then they get all flat and they look real funky. Um, a friend of a friend uh, saw one. So um, they sent me a picture of it so I could identify it for them. And it took a while because it looked like it should be, like it looked like a deflated sea urchin, but I had no idea what that would be. Turns out it essentially was a deflated sea urchin. Um, it was pretty nifty. Anyways, sea cucumbers. Okay. So sea cucumbers, there are about 1,700 different species of sea cucumber. Most of them live in relatively shallow waters, like think like reef ecosystems, where it's not always super shallow, like you're not always going to be able to wade in there, but still in the photic zone, which are the light areas of the ocean. Um, they scooch around on the ocean floor, always benthic. These guys don't swim. And they pretty much just eat detritus, which is kind of code for poop. Um, but any other decaying matter that they come across on the ocean floor, um, they kind of take the role like earthworms, crawl around like on the ground in the leaf litter and in the dirt eating um, detritus, um, decaying organic matter. Sea cucumbers kind of do perform a similar sort of role. So ecologically speaking, that's how sea cucumbers fit in. But there are some additional parts of sea cucumber anatomy that will be relevant in this episode that we should talk about. Sea cucumbers are pretty nifty little guys and um, also weird little guys and they don't really have gills per se. What they have is a structure called a respiratory tree and this is how they breathe. So respiratory trees are different from gills. So gills tend to have a rake-like structure and each of the uh, rakes are flattened and that's to help increase the surface area. So then the gases can exchange across that, across that surface. Um, but with the respiratory trees, if you imagine kind of like the branched nature of our lungs where we have our trachea, um, branch, and then we have all of the branch bronchioles that branch into smaller and smaller bits. The respiratory trees are just like that, just if you took away the lung tissue and just had the branching bit. So the respiratory trees are not at the head of the sea cucumber. They are tucked in the cloaca, so not at the head end. These are at the butt end. So um, I've said cloaca a couple of times. So what is a cloaca? Um, cloaca is one, a word that when you say it one too many times start sounding, starts sounding like not a word. Um, but two, they are a multi-purpose exit to the body. So it is an orifice that is used for multiple purposes. So for sea cucumbers, this is where their waste is excreted but it's also going to be where water is brought in and out for breathing. Um, and then any sort of like releasing of eggs or any of that sort of thing, that's going to be a cloaca duty as well. Very efficient system. And then lastly, um, sea cucumbers, much like people, they are, they're sea limates. So much like people, they have a body cavity where the guts and other organs sit. So if you were to slice halfway through them, you would see space in there. It's not just a solid mass of tissue. 
So um, the fancy name for this body cavity where all of the guts and things are is the uh, salomic cavity. That's what it's referred to a lot for whatever reason with the sea cucumbers. Um, the coelom is the cavity itself. So calling it the salomic cavity is a little bit redundant, but that's what a lot of the sea cucumbers paper, sea cucumber papers called it. That's what we're going to go with. And through the rest of this, I am going to try to say body cavity just because that's a little bit more vernacular. But if I do say coelom, salomic cavity instead, it's just the body cavity. It's the space in their general gut area. So that is the rambling bit about sea cucumbers. So now for the second part of this relationship, it is a little fish called the pearl fish. But what I have learned is that it is not always a wee little fish. So pearl fish belong to a family of eel-like fish called Carapidae. Ooh, Serapidae. I'm going to go with Serapidae because Carapidae sounds bad. I did not look it up and I have only read this. I am not entirely sure. Hold on. We're, we're going we're gonna to look that up. Okay. Encyclopedia.com says Carapidae which feels awkward, but if that's what it is, that's what it is. So, Carapidae. They, uh, the pearlfish live in tropical waters around the world, also mostly in shallow waters. Now, I knew most of the sea cucumber thing, so that section I did largely from memory, and even though I had my notes, we still had side tangents, and that's just what we get from memory. But I did have to do a lot of the research about the pearlfish, so there were a lot of things that I learned here. So I always thought that the pearlfish were all real small little fish. Um, like, most sea cucumbers are kind of in the 6 inches to a foot range, so like 30 centimeters-ish. So a decently sized log of a cucumber, but often not huge. And with the relationship that's going to happen here... Um, with I always just assumed the pearlfish were going to be small. Um, but turns out, the largest pearlfish can be up to 50 centimeters long, which is nearly two feet. And I guess they are skinny little fish, but that's also not small. And getting into why we're talking about them today, these fish are only free-living as larvae. So in the larval stage, they're going to be swimming around up in the water, water column, eating other little tiny things. But then as adults, they spend the vast majority of their time living inside sea cucumbers and apparently other invertebrates. And this was one of the other things that I have learned today. Apparently, in addition to sea cucumbers, they also live in sea stars? And I know there are some pretty good-sized starfish out there, and many of the pearlfish aren't, like, two feet long. Like, there are plenty of small ones. But I just don't fully get that. And I wasn't sure I wanted to look up too many pictures, but maybe I'll do, like, a little bonus episode sometime. I don't know. I'll, have, I'll look it up, and then I'll share it with you in some way, shape, or form. So that is the relationship. Uh, we have a good old sea cucumber pearlfish relationship with the pearlfish hanging out in the sea cucumbers 
cloaca. So there are different species of pearlfish that live in the sea cucumbers, which is also something different I learned. And generally, but not always, um, but generally speaking, the different species of pearlfish lived in different regions of the sea, cu sea cucumber. There were some um, within species, so within the same species, sometimes you did get individuals kind of nesting, so to speak, in different areas of the sea cucumber, but generally that appears to be um, species dependent. Um, but one thing that is consistent amongst all of them, wherever they end up in the sea cucumber, they all gain access through the sea cucumber's cloaca. Many pearlfish live around the respiratory trees. Some of them hang out in the intestines. And the species that tend to live in these two areas often have commensal relationships with a cucumber. So in this instance, the sea cucumber does not appear to be particularly harmed or particularly bothered by it. Um, there's at least no obvious damage in these instances. The pearlfish gains a nice, cozy, protected shelter. It can hide in throughout the day. It can at least partially emerge from for a bit grab to grab food without having to leave its mobile home. It gets a little bit of slow transportation. So it is a pretty good deal for the pearlfish. I'm sure the I don't know how much sea cucumbers think about it. Um, I'm sure they're not super thrilled. But as long as there's no physical damage being done, they seem to be doing all right. And then there are a small number of pearlfish that are at least a little bit parasitic. These are species that tend to live in the sea loam, as I said, the body cavity. Um, sea cucumbers with pearlfish in the body cavity almost always have damage in the body. So they almost always have damage in the respiratory trees in particular. And it's supposed that this damage is primarily due to the pearlfish having to swim through the respiratory trees or kind of make their way through in order to get to the cavity. But there is also some evidence that the pearlfish does um, at least nibble on some of the sea cucumber's organs and can impact the reproductive success of individuals. So this is not a great time for sea cucumbers, and um, they oftentimes have necrotic tissue, so there is a good chance that due to a pearlfish existing in their body cavity and eating their organs, they pick up some infections, and that's not a good time if you're a little sea cucumber. You don't want to be dealing with that. Um, one of the other fun things I learned about pearlfish and sea cucumbers, so oftentimes there is one pearlfish per sea cucumber. I thought it was always one pearlfish per cucumber. Um, apparently, though, according to a Smithsonian article about pearlfish, sea cucumbers can have up to five pearlfish at a time, but the article did imply that there could be more than five, and I feel like that is a lot of pearlfish for a sea cucumber to have living amongst their organs, but maybe in those cases it's a particularly large sea cucumber with some particularly small pearlfish and they just chill out together. So I did a little bit of looking around in the scientific literature to see if I could find much on the habits of pearlfish and sea cucumbers 
Um, but most of the articles I could see with a reasonably quick search were actually just about discovering new pearlfish species living in sea cucumbers, um, which is actually always kind of fun, I think. I, you don't always... I feel like there have been a lot of articles lately about different species going extinct and all that not-too-happy funness. So it always is just nice little rosy bit when they're like, hey, there's a bunch of new species around that we haven't identified yet. So that was kind of fun that that was the bulk of what I saw. Um, there was one paper I read, though, that did talk about some of the daily habits and um, biology of the pearlfish, albeit in a captive study. So in nature, it could be somewhat different, but we did get information. Um, what these researchers did... Um, they were doing a study on sea cucumbers, and some of them ended up having pearlfish. It wasn't a very high frequency out of like 500. I didn't put the numbers in my notes, but it was something like out of about 500 cucumbers, maybe like a couple dozen had pearlfish. So where they were looking didn't have a high um, fish load, parasite load, I guess. So um, the sea cucumbers that did have pearlfish got um, placed in a tank to observe their behavior. They found that for this species of pearlfish, Carpus moriani, they hide in their sea cucumber host throughout the day. And then as night falls, they start to emerge from their host, expose about half their body. And then once darkness settles in, the darkness of night settles down. They completely leave their sea cucumber host for short foraging trips, um, anywhere from about 50, like 40 minutes to an hour or so. They would then return to their cucumber host for a short bit of time and then go out on another foraging trip. So in this particular situation where there were several cucumbers confined in a tank, the pearlfish often did not return to the same host, which is interesting. Um, but this is also an instance where the sea cucumbers are going to be at a much higher density than they're going to be in the wild. You usually don't get congregations of like 20 cucumbers in like a three meter squared space or whatever size their aquarium was. So to me, this sounds like an instance where the pearlfish just saw a sea cucumber like, hey, that's the sea cucumber I'm going to live in for a little bit. I'm going to hide out. And then they just rinse and repeat as they go on foraging expeditions. Um, in the wild, though, where sea cucumber density wouldn't be near what it would be in this captive study, um, the pearlfish would very likely return to the same cucumber, perhaps unless they happened upon a closer sea cucumber in their foraging and just needed an easy hideaway spot and the opportunity presented itself. And that is what I have for you about sea cucumbers and pearlfish with some fun little side um, tangents about sea stars and urchins. So many common examples of commensalism, especially in like textbooks or whatever, are clownfish and anemones, and I think that's some of the first ones that I talked about. But I think the sea cucumber with the pearlfish is much more fun and it's a little bit left field, so when you tell people about it, they're oftentimes a little taken aback. I know um, 
when I was preparing for this episode, I told um, one of my chemistry friends about it, and it, it weirded her out for the rest of the night. So uh, that's always a fun time. So, um, so now you can go out and weird all of your friends out with uh, pearlfish living in the sea urchin's cloaca. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next time, which I'm not going to promise a time span, but we are going to try to get back into the uh, bi-weekly schedule. If you have somebody that is interested in sea cucumbers and their fish friends, um, be sure to share this podcast with them. They can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would like to support us financially, um, we do have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash quirkycreepyfreakypod. If you have any topics that you would like me to include in the podcast, you can email me at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at um, quirkycreepyandfreaky on Facebook and quirkycreepyfreakypod on Instagram. Editing is done by me, and the intro music was composed by Dr. Kaylee Strait. Um, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.